Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, friends. You know, some small businesses think that leasing a postage meter is how businesses get postage for their letters and packages. But they don't realize there's a better way. Stamps.com. Unlike a postage meter, Stamps.com has no hidden fees, no long-term contracts, and no extra hardware. At Stamps.com, you can save up to 80% compared to a postage meter. Plus, with Stamps.com, you can use your existing address books or send tracking information to recipients with the click of a button. Think about it, jackass. Why, I use Stamps.com, and I'm as regular a guy as another guy who's regular too. Why don't you use my promo code, which is R-I-S-K. It's a no-risk trial. Plus, you get a $110 bonus offer, including a digital scale and up to $55 free postage. Don't wait! Go to Stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on that microphone at the top of the homepage and type in R-I-S-K. That's Stamps.com. Now here's the show. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Sis Crusher behind me now. This is the first of two episodes we're calling our double feature of terror. We're calling this episode Ick. See, last Halloween we had an Ack. No, no, no. We had Eek. <laughs> Next week we have Ack. It's Eek, Ick, Ack, all right? Just accept it. You, there's nothing you can fucking do about it now. As you can tell, we're a little loopy tonight. We've just made it through a, something more horrifying than anything on this program 
a thing called Sandy, and now it's Halla motherfucking Ween. We all want to just let let a little steam off. Now, in just a bit, we're going to hear from our dear friend and risk favorite, Mr. Danny Lobel. He's going to be telling a story live from uh, Risk in Los Angeles. But before we go there, we're going to hear from the spectacular New York storyteller, Miss Michelle Carlo. I've had the pleasure of sharing the stage with her in storytelling shows all around town, and she's amazing. Her book, Fish Out of Agua, is out now, and a slightly different version of this story is in it. This is called Night of the Black Chrysanthemum. So I grew up across the street from St. Peter's Church in the Bronx, and that's one of the oldest buildings in the entire New York City. It's this huge church, and it takes up about four blocks. And a lot of kids would play in the graveyard because it was the only place for blocks around that wasn't an abandoned lot that had grass and trees in it. And I spent a large part of my childhood there reading the the faded gravestones that were like from the 1600s. Or if there was a fresh grave, you would look around it to see if you could find any money because once my cousin Benny found a $50 bill near one. And it was just a nice place when you just wanted to have some peace and quiet. You know, you might think it's strange that, you know, kids would go and play in the graveyard, but I didn't think there was anything wrong with it because, you know, when you grow up Latin, like I did, all various forms of religion are part of your everyday life. You know, it's not anything strange to you. Like, for example, my, um, my Titi Ophelia, she used to keep a glass of water behind the door in her apartment. So if you brought anything evil into the apartment with you, presumably the evil would go into the glass of water and drown. And she used to think that, you know, there was a lot of evil coming into her apartment because the glass was always empty. Now, I knew because when I went over there, I would see her dog drinking out of it, but I never said anything to her. And then my, um, my Titi Carmen, she had this plant that was, co- that was um, it kind of moved. I think it was a mandrake or something. It was like a root and it looked like it moved. And when my brother had this bad ear infection, they, they put it on him and like he sweated out his fever. And I was like, whoa, what kind of plant is was that and like my mom used to pray a lot I mean she was like half Catholic and half Pentecostal and they were always fighting with each other but sometimes she had this like little rosary and if she was sitting by the window and the light was right it looked like she was counting like rainbow prisms in her hand like it was like really it was beautiful I mean you know she's like praying in front of the window but it just like looked really pretty but you know no holy water or no mandrake root or no um rosary could have prepared anyone in my building or in my family for the Great Voodoo War of 1976. Ten years before, my family had been the first Puerto Rican family ever to move to that building on St. Peter's Avenue. And for years, we had to endure all the Irish and Italian families complaining that our food stank, our music was too loud, and we kids ran wild through the halls. Like, um, never mind that my mom fed us like stovetop stuffing and instant mashed potatoes. And um, the only music that they ever played was like Johnny Cash and, and Sant- well, yeah, Santana, okay, all Puerto Rico's listen to Santana. But like my brother and I were never allowed to play in the hall. And okay, come on, like, like the Irish are peaceful and garlic doesn't stink, please, you know. But so when years later, two other Puerto Rican families moved into the building, we thought, oh, hey, we'd have allies. But the Garcia and Morales families, they kept to themselves. And the, the teenagers, they didn't listen to Led Zeppelin or Black Sabbath or The Who, so therefore they were useless to me. The little kids weren't allowed to play with anybody else, so my brother couldn't play with them. And when my mom tried to talk to them, all she could find out was that they had come from the same town in Puerto Rico, but they had bad blood between them. And my father was just like, well, if they hated each other over there, why the hell did they move in over here? 
We never knew what started this installment of their war, but all of a sudden there was just like yelling in the alleyway. Like people would like hang out the window and they would just like yell at everybody. They was like cursing, but not just like saying, fuck you, son of a bitch kind of cursing. No, this was just like curses. Like these were proclamations from one family to the other for like barren wombs and brain tumors and infidelity and and madness and incurable diarrhea and unemployment and more incurable diarrhea. And, you know, it would have been funny if they hadn't sounded so serious. Not too long after that, I came home from school one day and I found three shiny copper pennies in a triangle in front of the Garcia's door and there was like this powder sprinkled around it looked like cornmeal so I picked up the pennies and I brought them into the apartment and I told my mother what I had found and she ran to the door she looked and she saw the cornmeal and she took the pennies she opened up the window five flights down she threw the pennies out the window and then she made me scrub my hands with rubbing alcohol and that lava soap and then she told me to never ever never ever never ever never look at or touch anything in front of the Garcias and the Morales family's apartments ever, ever again. Fine. Except that every couple of days now, I would come home from school and there would be something else not to look at or touch in front of either the Garcias or Morales' apartments. Like one day there were kernels of corn arranged in patterns in front of the Morales' apartment. Then a couple of days after that, there were all these dead flowers scattered in front of the Garcias' apartment and then the day after that there were these candles and strange groupings in front of the Morales's apartment and it just went on and on and on and then you know I didn't pay any attention to it because I didn't look I didn't touch I don't like that lava soap it rips your hands up but one day I went into St. Peter's Cemetery to walk around to be alone I mean I didn't play looking for praying mantises or $50 bills in front of graves anymore but I needed to be alone because you know I'm a teenager and I had found out that day that yet another boy that I had a mad crush on had refused me by saying that I had a nice ass but an ugly face. And I just was crying. I was just crying. And I sat down like on a little like, you know, rock under a tree, just, you know, looking in the mirror and like, I'm ugly, I'm ugly. And I put my hand down and I jerked up. Because what I had put my hand down on was what looked a lot like a pair of freshly cut chicken feet tied around with a red string and tied to that to an envelope that was addressed to the Morales' family. Well, I just jumped up and I grabbed the envelope and I took it home and I said, Ma, look what I found. Look what I found. And she just like looked at it out the window again. And then she goes right to the Garcia's family and she knocks. Mira, I know you're in there. I know what you're doing, and it's not sanitary. You have to think. Children play in that graveyard. And then a voice came out warning my mother in Spanish that if she didn't get away, she was going to be next. So my mother just like goes into the apartment and slams the door, and we were just like, what the hell just happened? But the next day, there was a skinned, crucified mouse taped to the Morales' door. The Morales family moved out in the middle of the night, cursing and screaming, and this back and forth invective between the two families. And you know, it's entirely in Spanish, but who understood this? This is not language that my family used. So my brother and I just put the TV on louder, we're doing our homework, and this family moves out. And my mother is furious. She was like, this is no right. Somebody's got to do something. And my brother is just like, what are you going to do, Ma? Get Titi Carmen's plant after them? And my mother was like, no, worse. And she went into the bedroom and she shut the door. Now, what had just been this little simple little clash between the Puerto Rican Hatfields and the McCoys just became this huge thing of Armageddon. And um, my father decided that he needed to go work an extra night shift. So he just like left us there with my mother. And what my mother did was she went into the bedroom and she took out her King James Bible and she opened the window and she started reading the Bible out the window all night. She was reading the Bible out the window when my brother and I went to sleep. She was reading the Bible out the window when my brother and I left for school the next morning. She was reading the Bible out the window when my brother and I came home from school. 
And when my father came home and almost burnt down the kitchen trying to cook us dinner, my mother was still reading the Bible out the window, and now she was reading it in Spanish because the Garcia family was yelling curses at her. Now, this is when my father decided that he needed to work another double night shift. So he just left my brother and me alone behind the front lines. And my brother and I, we tried our own counterattack. We tried blasting late night reruns of the Honeymooners and um, Hogan's Heroes and Rat Patrol on a little 12 inch black and white television. But we were no match for the almighty word of Jesus Cristo, Dios, almighty God. Finally, we were exhausted. We fell asleep. And the next morning, I wake up. It's quiet. And I, you know, my mother comes in, she's getting us up for school, and I'm like, Ma, Ma, what happened? And she goes, Oh, the Garcia family, they are gone. And she's like, Here, do you mind taking out this garbage on your way when you go to school? So I'm like, They moved out. How do you know they moved out? So, you know, I go downstairs, five flights of stairs, and I go to the alley. And I see just like belongings strewn all over the place. And it looked like just somebody was just throwing things out the window. So I put the garbage down on top of the garbage can and I look up. And I see that there's pieces of paper fluttering around still. And I pick one up and it's, it's a page from the Bible. And I pick up another piece of paper and it's another page from the Bible. And I look up again and I see my mom and dad's bedroom window, which is in between the Garcia's and what were the Morales's windows. So like not only had my mother spoken the word of God out that window, she hurled it at them. And so the great voodoo war of 1976 was stopped by the one force that no curse on this planet earth has any power against, the righteous fury of a Latina mother who was scorned. And even though my mom later on said that, oh, she needed to repent because she ripped up the Bible and threw it out the window, I had to think that even though it's like totally nuts, in a way it was kind of punk and kind of cool. I mean, when you think about it, my mom out crazy the crazy people and mama got the job done. This is uh, in my early 20s. Um, I had found a living situation on the internet with a nerd, a dork, and a geek. And I'm an uncategorized strange person. <laughs> so whereas I'm usually socially inept, I was the eptest I've ever been in this situation, which was pretty good. And uh, the only thing, they didn't like me. They didn't care for me very much. The geek liked me, but the nerd and the dork, they weren't fans. <laughs> and one day they just decided to end the lease. I don't know if it was because of me, but uh, there was just tension, you know? I'm the only one who liked it. And, uh, <laughs> and they just decided we're disbanding. And I'm like, all right, when? They're like, we're ending this lease in like a week. And I was like, oh, fuck, you know? I had to find a new place. And uh, my friend told me that his girlfriend... Uh, his uncle had a place to look at, so when I was looking at place, I went and looked at his place right next to Carnegie Hall. And I remember I, I went in there, and uh, the guy's name is Don, and he's got this amazing apartment. It's just huge, not even by New York standards, but by life standards. It's a big apartment by wherever you live in life. <laughs> this was a big apartment. And the room was just huge, and the window... Overlook, you know, you open the window and it's Carnegie Hall next door, and I was like, well, this isn't something I can afford. But uh, I, I spoke to him and I said, look, uh, what are you asking for this? He's like, well, the rent is like something like six thousand a month, and uh, I figured we'd split it. I go, look, you know, it's nice to meet you, Don. Don was a guy in his forties and uh, had a very, he was very pleasant. He had a kind face, a pleasant guy, and. Uh, I said, Don, you know, you seem like a great guy. I'd love to have lived here, but I can't do that. He's like, oh, all right. Well, uh, how much were you hoping to spend? I'm like, I don't know. The most I could have possibly spent is 1100 a month. 
And he goes, all right, let's do that then. <laughs> and I said, all right, well, uh, you sure? <laughs> he goes, yeah, be fun. He said, I'm just kind of looking for someone to hang out around here. And, uh, and I said, sure, all right, and I moved in. <laughs> and uh, Don was like a real-life Kramer from Seinfeld, if, if Kramer was a very laid-back Kramer. Uh, he always had like these schemes going and the reason he was doing so well he had this big apartment was he was importing these things called the party bike from Holland and uh, <laughs> it was just a big round red bike where eight people sit around it's a party <laughs> everyone sits around in a round bike and uh, one person steers and he was, he was charging for rides in Times Square and he was just racking in money and uh, he had one, then he had two, and then he had eight, you know. I remember he was asking me, like, he's like, not you, because I know you're not physically fit. But uh, <laughs> do you know people who could push these? So I had, like, all my comic friends riding party bikes <laughs> uh, and uh, working for Don. Don had, like, uh, all these people from Times Square always coming up uh -huh. to the apartment. He was, like, friends with the photo guy who takes the ghetto photos of you in Times Square. The Chinese caricature guy would be coming up. They'll be hanging out at like one in the morning with Don. And hey, what's up? Guy'd <laughs> be making a caricature of him in the living room. Huh? Hey, pretty good. <laughs> uh, when I moved into the apartment and I, in the interview process, I remember Don had asked me, he said, uh, Are you Jewish? And I go, Yeah, I'm Jewish. He goes, Where are you from? I said, Originally from Queens. He goes, Yeah, me too. Jew from Queens. I go, okay, cool. He goes, yeah, I had my bar mitzvah at the uh, Temple Shalom. And I'm like, all right, well, sounds like a place. Cool. <laughs> yeah. And the whole time I was there, uh, he just always peppered things with these stories of uh, Jewish life. Just an interesting fact uh, about Don. Uh, another interesting fact about Don is that he'd often wake me up at like 2 in the morning. He had a car. And he'd be like, let's drive to Wohop. We're getting Chinese food. That was a thing that we'd do. Uh, I never liked driving. Uh, I'm just adjusting to it here in L.A. But uh, I used to be terrified of driving. And one, one time around 5 a.m., he just wakes me up. He goes, hey, I, I need you to drive me a few blocks. I go, all right. And I'm driving, I go, well, uh, where are we going? He's like, just go a few more blocks. I figure we're going to Wohop, you know. Uh, a few more blocks. He had me drive him all the way to Atlantic City. Right. And, uh, <laughs> and then when we got there, I said, so what are we doing here? He goes, nothing. I just wanted you to drive a little bit. <laughs> so, All right. Well, we played some penny slots for a few minutes, and then we went home. And, uh, and then something happened. Don had never gotten permits for the bikes, so things started to get bad for him because the city started cracking down and confiscating these party bikes because the, the guys who have the, tat, the little, I don't know what they're called, the bike peddlers that have a little... The rickshaw guys, they started cracking down with the city, like, we have to have a license. Why does a party bike not have to have a license? And, uh, and that started becoming a thing that he'd always be in court fighting that. But he was, he was just, just a strange man. Like, you, you come in, he always had, I think, Asian prostitutes at the place. I think they were prostitutes. They might have just been legitimate Asians. I don't know. But uh, <laughs> it's, it's hard to say. I, and... Uh, <laughs> And he'd always watch these videos of guys. This is the thing about Don. He'd watch these videos of people, real footage. He found a website of real footage of people getting hit by trains. And he'd just sit there with a glass of wine and laugh his ass off. And anytime I'd bring someone home, you know, I have a friend come over. He'd be like, hey, hey, come over here. Take a look at this. And they'd just play a guy getting hit by a train and just being decapitated. And just die laughing. My friend, whoever it was, they'd look at me like, what the fuck kind of shit is this? I'd be like, I don't know. He likes it. That's the one, that's the one thing about Don. He just loves people getting hit by train. He's a perfectly nice man in every way. Except for loving the fact that people get hit by trains on video on a regular basis. That's the thing about Don. The other thing about Don is that he, he always pulled pranks. But his pranks were not real pranks by any stand. They weren't even like bizarre Andy Kaufman pranks. These, these were not, they were non-prank pranks. He, he, he pulled pranks like, I'm bringing home a pizza for dinner. So I don't get anything, you know, I'm getting a pizza. And then he'd come home and I'd go, hey, did you get that pizza? And he'd go, what pizza? And he'd smirk. 
All right. I think you got me. Well, things kept getting worse with the bikes in the city, and, uh, and they kept cracking down, and Don says one day, he says, look, you know, I can't afford to keep this apartment going, uh, so uh, we got to... We got to disband. It's over. I was disappointed, and uh, I moved out, and we stayed friends, you know. Two months later, uh, he, he just takes a heart attack and dies out of nowhere. And he was a healthy guy, you know. He rode a bike every day, you know, <laughs> several of them. And, uh, and he just died. And I was like, geez, I can't believe Don just fucking died. It was just the weirdest out of nowhere thing. And I get a call from his niece, and she's, you know, she's crying, and she's, she says, um, you know, I thought you might want to come to the funeral. And I said, yeah, I would, I, I would like to go there. And, uh, and she says, okay, so here's the address. It's at the so-and-so chapel um, in uh, the most Italian part of Brooklyn. And, uh, and I, I go, a cha chapel? So that's interesting. I said, a church? She goes, yeah. I said, it's a little weird, no? Being that he's a Jew? And she's like, Don's not a Jew. It's a little bit? Is he a little? <laughs> she's like, no, he's not even slightly Jewish. He's 100% Italian. Like, Son of a bitch, all right. <laughs> and I went to bed that night, and I had a dream like no other dream I've ever had. And in my dream, Don came to me and it was very real. And, uh, and he said, hey, Danny. He says, you going to my funeral tomorrow? And I said, yeah, I wouldn't miss it. And uh, he says, good, because I need you to do me a favor. And it's going to sound crazy. And you might even realize that you're dreaming right now. But don't take any of that into account. He says, no matter how ridiculous what I'm about to ask you sounds, when you wake up from this dream, do it. Because this is the only opportunity I have to ask you. I can only talk to you in a dream. And if you doubt this or whatever, don't. I need you to promise me that you're really going to do this. I go, okay, what is it? He goes, tomorrow at my funeral, I need you to go around and individually tell everybody there that I am the guy responsible for writing the movie Nacho Libre. <laughs> and he says, again, don't bail on me on this. <laughs> and I woke up. I didn't know what the hell to do. Because he really, he called me on this. He said, you better not bail out on this Nacho Libre thing. So I fuck it, I gotta do it. <laughs> I, I don't even know Don's family or anybody there, just his niece. So I called my friend Dave, I said, I gotta do a strange thing today uh, at this funeral. I gotta tell everybody that you know, Don, my old roommate who died, is, he, he was the one who really wrote the movie Nacho Libre. And he's like, oh, I don't wanna miss that, I'm coming. <laughs> so... <laughs> So we go to this little chapel, and it, it is really hardcore Italian. I mean, it really feels like a Sopranos episode, this tiny little chapel. And everybody there, they don't even look regular Italian. or uh, These are like mobstery-looking Italians with lots of jewelry on their fingers and leather jackets and, and severe overweight. And, uh, <laughs> and there in the front uh, is Don in an open casket, you know, and on either side of him are these oak tag boards with collage photos of Don. And there's Don's sister, who I was explaining that's Don's sister, just bawling over the coffin. And I walk over there with my friend Dave. And we start looking at the photo collages of Don. And we notice that every, sing <coughs> we notice that every single photo on these collages is Don with topless chicks. That's it. It's just so many topless chicks on every... F it's, it's bizarre. And the niece comes over and says, yeah, Don picked out the photos that if he ever died, he'd want these photos. And I'm looking at these photos 
and they're, they're all, all sorts of situations. One of them, the tits are, are painted black, and he's wearing them as Mickey Mouse ears on his head. <laughs> they're just like tits all over America, and I think European tits. There's a lot of different tits. And there's Don's sister just crying over the cup, and my friend Dave turns to her and goes, Don really loved titties, didn't he? <laughs> and she goes, he really did. <laughs> and then I cut in. And I say, um, I'm a friend of Don's, and I was his roommate for a while, and I just want to tell you something. He came to me in a dream, and she's like, what? I said, Don came to me in a dream, and he wanted me to tell you <laughs> that he is responsible for writing the movie Nacho Libre. <laughs> and she goes, what? I said, it's a movie with Jack Black where he played a Mexican wrestler. It came out about two years ago. And she goes, okay. <laughs> and I just move on to the next person. And I'm going person to person. And uh, one guy was like, really? He's like, so what are we going to do about this? I go, I don't know. He's like, we, Don's got to get this credit. I go, well... He didn't tell me to take care of that part. I'm just a messenger. And then I see Don's old mother, his old 80-year-old mother from Italy. And I, 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 I got to tell her. And I go up and I say, your son was a great man. And she goes, thank you, Don is a great man. He's a great man. He's such a good boy. I said, and he wanted me to tell you that he wrote the movie Nacho Libre. What? My Donna never wrote a movie. I said, he might not have, but he wanted me to tell you that his ghost came to... What do you mean his ghost came to... I don't know if it's a ghost, but Don, a version of Don came to me in my dream, and like this big, tough, fucking Italian dude walks over and goes, Ma, and it's not his mom, I think they just call her mom. And he, <laughs> he goes, Ma, what's going on here? And, and she goes, he's telling me that the Don is the ghost of the Don in the movie. I don't know what he's talking about. I said, look, Respectfully, uh, last night I had a dream in which Don wanted me to tell everybody here that he wrote the movie with Jack Black, Nacho Libre, the wrestling comedy. He goes, what the fuck, is this a fucking joke? I go, no, I, I, I wouldn't, you're trying to disrespect Don just fucking dies and he's lying there and you go to his fucking mother when his fucking dead body is right over there and start making fucking jokes about him writing fucking Jack Black movies? What the fuck is wrong with it? And now like three more big Italian guys are there. Like, what's going on? This fucking guy, it was fucking, the fucking, the fucking guy, huh? Fucking Nacho Libre bullshit motherfucker. And then like, they're like, get the fuck out of here. You better fucking get the fuck out of this funeral right now. And so I left. <laughs> I'm like, Dave, we gotta go. We're kicked out of the funeral. <laughs> and in, in the dream, I knew, I kind of knew that Don was fucking with me. <laughs> and even doing it, I suspected this is not true. You know, this is... But then I was absolutely sure <laughs> that Don had got one over on me from another dimension. Don had managed to prank me yet one more time. Thank you guys very much. This is Risk. Uh, I just heard this song for the first time today. It's called Waves by Blondfire. And now I'm quite stoned. 
but I think it's pretty good, right? You're the objective one here, but that doesn't change the fact that I'm right. Now, how about that Danny LaBelle? We've had him on three times now, I think, on the podcast. I think he just loves people so much that he is a magnet for remarkable characters. What the? This man is has a compilation of of footage of people being hit by trains. What, how much footage exists and why? Anyway, that was Danny at the Risk Live Show in Los Angeles that we have once a month at the Nerd Melt Theater. We call that one. Don really liked titties. <laughs> I, I'm so unused to saying that word. Now listen, uh, we've been doing this thing where every now and then we ask you guys a question on Facebook, and this week one of them that we asked was, what's the riskiest Halloween costume you ever wore? And this guy Trevor wrote in on Facebook, when I was in the third grade, I loved the comic book Spawn. So my mom made me the costume with the black mask, chains, spikes, and all. I ended up just looking like a kinky little kid. (laughs) I am sure that somewhere out there in kinkdom, someone has been dominated by someone dressed as Spawn. And we hope it was good for both of them. Now, coming up a little bit later, you are going to hear from the remarkable comedian Mr. Ken Reed with a remarkable story he told at the Risk Live show in New York. But before that, we are going to hear from Todd Dakota Briscoe. Todd is a member of the sketch comedy group Political Subversities, and we call his story the only thing it could be called The Seven Seven Gates of Hell. Hell. So when you and your two best friends are three closet case game Mormons in the Texas panhandle, what exactly can you do to have fun? I mean, the usual options are to get drunk, to get high, to get pregnant. We couldn't do any of those. So instead, we found our excitement in ghost hunting. I actually firmly believe in ghosts. Many times I feel like I have seen ghosts. I don't know what it was exactly about searching for ghosts that fueled us. I guess it was because when I found myself in a pitch black room with the possible undead or possible spirits, I found a courage inside of me I didn't know I had. A courage that I was lacking when it came to coming out of the closet. A courage I didn't have when it came to speaking in class or playing any kind of sports or, God forbid, having to shower in the locker rooms of the high school. Mark, Seth, and I, we were like the Scooby-Doo gang, but even more sexually confused. We would hear of stories of uh, abandoned factories or old cabooses outside of town, and we would hop into my orange Ford Focus named Bernadette, after Bernadette Peters, and we would play an instrumental version of the Ballad of Sweeney Todd, and we would drive out to find these ghosts. It became an obsession for us. So oftentimes, encounters with ghosts can be explained as overactive imaginations, or it can be explained with faulty wiring or radio-electromagnetic signals going haywire. But I still can't quite explain what happened to me and my friends at the Seven Gates of Hell. I first heard about the Seven Gates of Hell from a trusted teacher of mine. 
The legend says that you drive down this old country road and you pass seven gates, and at each gate, weirder and weirder things happen. And supposedly, at the seventh gate, you die. My teacher went out there one time with her boyfriend. She told me that she didn't see anything out of the ordinary until around the third gate. Because this was an old country road, they were driving fairly quickly, maybe 60, 70 miles an hour, and they didn't even have time to see the little girl who appeared in the middle of the road. They just saw her blonde hair and her little blue dress flying over the windshield, and hearing the bumps over the car. They did the responsible thing, and they stopped the car. They called the police immediately, and they tried to find the girl. The police came out there and helped them search for this little girl. With no little girl found, the police let them go on their way. But there was never a report of a missing child, and they certainly didn't find any little girl's body out there in the daytime either. When I decided to go out to see the seven gates of hell for myself with my friends Mark and Seth, we drove about ten miles outside the city like we were supposed to, and started going down this old country road. The seven gates are actually cattle guards, which are metal grates that allow cars to drive between ranch properties without the cattle crossing over. So over each gate, you would hear a bum 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 bum, and the car would shake. And after the first bum 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 bum, we didn't really see much different. A few crosses in the road, a few rags tied to trees, and after the second gate, still nothing. But at the third gate. My radio shut off. It's not like I lost reception. I lost the power in the radio completely. I couldn't play a CD or a tape. There was just no power going there, so no outside sound except for our breathing in the car, and of course the bum of every gate that we passed over. At the fourth gate, nothing out of the usual happened. Then at the fifth gate, we saw four lights in the distance. And as we drove closer and closer to the lights, this image of a factory came into focus. And as we got even closer, Mark pointed out that there were about two dozen men outside, and these men were wearing matching orange jumpsuits and hard hats. They seemed to be outside on their smoke break. As we got closer and closer, they began to notice us as well. Seth was the first one to point out that they actually seemed to be yelling at us. We couldn't hear what they said, but we saw a couple of them running towards us as if they were going to talk to us, and we got scared immediately and turned the car back around. We felt like we were trespassing, and we didn't want to get into trouble with real people. In fact, we wondered if the seven gates of hell was maybe just a made-up legend to keep people away from this factory. So we turned back and drove through all five gates. Curious about the factory and wanting to know more on another night. The next night we were all available. We got back into the car and drove out there. The first gate, again, nothing happened. The second gate, again, nothing happened. At the third gate, almost like clockwork, my radio shut off completely and I lost power one more time. This time we noticed that the sky was much brighter than it was the previous night. And as we got closer and closer to the factory, we realized that this entire factory was engulfed in flame. These men in the orange jumpsuits were still there, but this time they didn't notice us because they were desperately trying to get buckets of water or fleeing the smoke from inside. We turned around immediately, knowing the fire department was going to come. But the next day, I tried to find a report of this fire. I called the fire department to see if they had had gone out there for any reason. They hadn't. This was in the early 2000s, and Google had just come out with a product called Google Earth, which had satellite pictures of the entire Earth. I found Amarillo, Texas, and I followed the satellite up Western Street, up to Brick Plant Road, which is this long road where the seven gates of hell supposedly are. And I followed that, but nowhere along the road did I ever see a satellite picture of this factory. So we go out there for a third time. First gate, nothing. Second gate, 
nothing. Third gate, radio turns off. Fourth gate, nothing. Fifth gate, we're driving along the road, and this time we don't see any lights off in the distance. Just kind of the pitch black of the flat Texas panhandle. And soon we see the factory, but it's a very different factory than the one we've seen the previous two nights. Now there's a chain link fence all around it. The paint seems to be peeling off the walls. The towers and the silos that were previously there seem to have crumbled and collapsed. The windows are boarded up, and certainly there are no workers there. We look for signs of a fire, but that does not even seem to have happened there. We drive a circle around the factory, this being the first time we get to see all sides of it. And as far as we can tell, no one's been there in perhaps decades. It's just an old, abandoned building out in the middle of this country road. I've tried to look through the town archives to find something about a factory out in the middle of this road, and I can't find anything. I really can't explain what the hell happened or what the hell it is, but I know I saw it. Our experience with the seven gates of hell lit a fire under our asses, and we decided to try out a few places, including Summit Elementary, supposedly Amarillo's most infamously haunted place. We'd been to Summit Elementary before, but after the seven gates of hell, we thought to ourselves, maybe now the ghosts know who we are and they'll make themselves more apparent to us. In the 1960s, Summit Elementary was shut down after a janitor killed four of the students, then hung himself in the boiler room. There were two dead prostitutes found there in the 80s, and several homeless men were found dead there throughout the years. So one night, Mark, Seth, and I had just finished watching my old tape of Into the Woods by Stephen Sondheim, and we found ourselves restless and needing something to do. We got in the car, grabbed a video camera to record the footage, and we went out looking for ghosts. I had heard from the older students that what you're supposed to do is flash your lights onto the swing set, and as every good ghost hunter knows, you must follow the lore because it is lore for a reason. So we go, and we turn off the car, and we sit in silence, waiting. And I flash the lights once. Nothing happened, so I flashed the lights twice, and we waited. Then I flashed the lights a third time, and still nothing happened, so I thought that the ghosts might not know that we're there, so I started flashing the lights on and off and started honking my horn, thinking that that might stir up some shit. Out from behind the back of the building, two cars pulled out as fast as they possibly could. One began driving away immediately, but the other flashed its lights twice towards us and started going directly at us as fast as it could. I turned the car back on and zoomed out of the school parking lot as fast as I possibly could, going so fast that I actually went over the sidewalk onto the street. I found myself in a residential district going 80 miles per hour with this random car who was parked at the school at 3 o'clock in the morning, mere inches behind me. So I keep going as fast as I possibly can, zooming in and out until I finally make it to the highway and the car stops following us and we proceed on. The adrenaline I felt that night was unlike anything else. I was Vin Diesel or James Bond in the high-speed car chase or Sandra Bullock in Speed, which is basically the gay men's equivalent of a Steve McQueen movie. And we were finally the alpha males that we wanted to be. We thought about what could have happened. I bet they had guns, Mark said. I bet, I bet it was a drug deal, is what Seth said. I knew that they must have had guns, or knives, or drugs, or prostitutes. They probably had prostitutes. When we got back to my house, we realized that we'd had the video camera on this entire time, and it was caught on tape. 
We couldn't wait to watch it, to possibly show it to our other friends, to show them that we survived this dangerous encounter in a seedy part of Amarillo, Texas. But when we turned on the tape, all we could hear was the high-pitched squeals of what sounded like three young girls. We could hear Seth going, no, 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 no. We could hear Mark going, oh, my God. Okay, what's it doing? What's it doing? And you can actually hear me at one point say, Come on, Bernie, girl, you gotta get out of here. But you know what? Ghost hunting did make me feel like a man. Or at least like Sandra Bullock in Speed. just outside of Boston and when I was 13 years old I was fairly miserable I had no friends uh, I was really into punk rock uh, I'd seen more or less every horror film ever made uh, at that point really not much different from now but uh, I'd seen every horror film everything you can imagine like things that are horribly inappropriate for 13 year olds uh, and the reason I had seen them was because my parents took me to the theater pretty much every week and took me to see Hellraiser uh, and all the Nightmare on Elm Street movies. Uh, and I was, at the time, I thought that was really cool that my parents were very progressive had taken me to these movies. But as an adult, I realized they're just really shitty parents who didn't want to get a babysitter. Like, they're the people that now, I'm like, those people are assholes and this isn't an appropriate movie for a child. But at the time, I was like, my parents are awesome. There's a severed head uh, forcibly performing cunnilingus on a woman on a table and I'm seven years old and that's a reanimator. So, uh, I loved horror movies. I had a subscription to Fangoria magazine because I wanted to ensure uh, that I was a virgin until I was 18. <laughs> And so that, that's sort of where I was at at the time. And outside in the suburbs, just outside of Boston, like probably most uh, suburbs in the Northeast, in our neighborhood, we had a, a sort of mysterious big old Victorian house. And the man who lived in this house was named Eddie Murphy. And it was not that Eddie Murphy. That, it's, that would be a much different story. Uh, this was, in fact, uh, an 80-year-old man from Maine who used to be a train conductor. And I knew he was from Maine because of his accent, and I knew he was roughly in his 80s because he was decrepit. And uh, I knew he was, used to be a train conductor because he wore a train conductor uniform every day. <laughs> he kind of looked like Fred Gwynn in Pet Cemetery. He was essentially, he was like if you took Mr. Hooper from Sesame Street and combined him with Don Knotts, but not in a fun way. <laughs> so he lived in this house, and uh, he had five dogs, and they were all named Charlie. And we never figured out if he knew he had five dogs or if he just thought he had one, which is why they all had the same name. And we tried to stay away from him because I've described him for two minutes and you would say, yes, stay away from him. He always uh, had a fire burning in his backyard. And when I was a kid, which was kind of mysterious, when I was a kid, I just theorized that he was actually the mythical keeper of this eternal flame that was actually keeping the balance between order and chaos. But it turned out he just didn't want to pay for trash collection, which was the, the real story. And also, uh, we tried not to interact with him because why would you? But sometimes it was unavoidable and he would always ask us the same question. He would go, uh, been watching the BBC? <laughs> which is a very strange question to ask in general, but an especially strange question to ask children in America. Like, that's a really weird question to ask anyone. I try to avoid him. He didn't have any family, as far as I know. Uh, the only person that came to visit him was this gentleman who looked exactly like Santa Claus, who only visited him in the summer, so it could have been. But, uh, and then this mentally challenged woman that him and Santa Claus would sign out of wherever she lived every so often on a weekend, and then she only wore white sweatsuits, which made it perfect for us being able to tell 
when she had had an incident. Uh, and he would, he would put her out in front of the house, obviously, because she had a problem. And so we wouldn't leave our house because she would talk to you. Her name was Stevie. And she talked uh, in the third person all the time and had a, like an aggressive lisp and would be like, hey, I'm Stevie. And so the only time my family ever did anything as a family was when we hatched a plan to get out of our house without having to talk to Stevie. So my parents would call Eddie Murphy's house and they would ask for Stevie. And he'd be like, Stevie, telephone call. And she'd be like, oh, Mr. Murphy. And she'd run in there. And then my parents would be like, go, get in the car. Go, go. We'll pull it around. <laughs> and we'd get out. So it was really the only time we acted as a family. Also, really the only neighborhood tradition we had involved Mr. Murphy. So aside from him asking us if we had seen the BBC, uh, the only other interaction was every Halloween at dusk, Mr. Murphy would come out of his house dressed as the Budweiser werewolf. <laughs> which was a very short-lived mascot that was around just long enough for him to obtain a costume of it. It was essentially a rubber, an, a poor rubber werewolf mask and hands with a, like a trucker Bud Light hat attached to it. And he would come out of his house and he would light a road flare uh, and then do two laps around the block, jam the road flare into a telephone pole, throw full-sized Reese's peanut butter cups in the air and yell, fuckers. That's what you do. Fuckers, fuckers, for, for five or 10 minutes till he ran out of the, the peanut butter cups. And my parents would wait till we went inside and then would be like, go get those peanut butter cups because those, those are full-sized. So this is the world we lived in with, with Eddie Murphy. So when I was 13 years old, Thanksgiving rolls around, and all my dirtbag relatives are at our house, because we have a house, and free food. And they start asking us about Eddie Murphy, because we often had tales of his antics, and we didn't want to have to talk to each other about us. So we realized that we hadn't really seen him since Halloween and his traditional fuckers. So my father, who, although is a Vietnam veteran, is a colossal pussy, uh, starts trying to change the subject. So my uncles, who like to bully him, were like, why don't you go check on him? Because for some weird reason, we had a key to his house, which looked like a skeleton key. Like, this key looked like if, if the mayor of a cemetery granted you the keys to the cemetery, this is what it looked like. So after a few drinks and more goading, my father's like, fine, I'll go over there. And he takes me with him. So we've never been in that house for good reason. I have no reason to go in there. We go in, we open the door, and we start looking around. We don't see Eddie Murphy. But I realize that the only thing my father and I ever did together was go to flea markets. So we forget all about looking for Mr. Murphy and just start appraising everything in his house. Like, as we're like, okay, one of those TV lamps. That's pretty cool. So after about 20 minutes, I'm like, oh, we're supposed to look for Mr. Murphy. So we go up this stairwell, which is like the one in Fright Night. And uh, we look in some rooms. He's not in there. I notice there's no dogs. I'm like, maybe, I don't know where he went. Uh, maybe he ran off to elope with Stevie. So finally, we open the bedroom. And I open the door. And laying on the bed is Mr. Murphy with no clothes on and also missing two-thirds of his skin. Uh, he was deceased, but like really deceased, like horrifically deceased, because at some point his dogs ate part of him, which also killed his dogs, which were all dead around his bed. Right? So, I don't know if you guys are familiar With that famous photo of Marilyn Monroe, where she's dead in that bed, face down with the silk sheets, and it's kind of beautiful in a haunting way. It was exactly like that, except if you replace Marilyn Monroe with a dead, naked man from Maine, who's not on his front, he's on his back, and looks absolutely horrified. Like, just like, he did not die peacefully. Like, he was just, ah! Like, he looked like death had come up to him personally and he turned around to ask Death if he had been watching the BBC. <laughs> and was completely surprised by his imminent death. Now his arm was up above his head and was completely stripped of any flesh. It was just bone. 
it looked like a cartoon when a cat has a whole fish they put in their mouth and pull it out clean. It was like that. Now keep in mind, I, I had seen every horror movie ever, so the first thing that occurred to me was, that's not very convincing. thought I was like Tom Savini would not let that out of the shop that there's no way that would have I mean maybe put some KY on it and you lit it right but that's not no one's gonna buy that and I mean it smelled bad in there but I don't know if that was any more bad than it probably smelled before he was dead I don't know if the dogs died from eating him if he was poisoned they looked mutants anyway they were covered in tumors and had very little hair so I'm sort of just interested in this, and I'm sort of just examining this, and I realized that my dad, the Vietnam veteran, is freaking the fuck out. Like, he screamed, like, like you would see in a movie, like, oh, dear God! Like, completely freaked. Ah! Like, actually backed up into the wall and then kind of slumped down. And then he started vomiting. And I have no feelings, so. And also at that point, I pretty much only knew how to react to things based on movies. So I go, well, I'm probably gonna have to slap him. Cause who doesn't wanna slap their dad and what an appropriate time to do it. So I smacked him and I said, be a man. He was just kind of dumbfounded. Uh, we, we left because I don't know what else we were going to do. I wasn't going to start investigating the scene. So we walk back over to our house and, and we see all of my relatives sort of in the windowsill like a dog waiting for us to get home. Just, whoa, what's going on? We walk in and my dad is a wreck. So one of my aunts comes out and just wraps him in a blanket like, like he just finished a marathon. He's pretty much catatonic. He's full on Barbara and not a living dead. So my uncles are like, what happened? And I'm like, well, he's dead. And I see one of my uncles hand my other uncle like a $20 bill. <laughs> Obviously making good on the bet they had made. And then I say, yeah, the dogs ate them and they're also dead. And then I see my uncle hand back the $20 bill. The other uncle is like, I should have doubled down on that one. You, you got me. So now we should call the police. Because if you ever find a dead body, that's my advice to you. You call the police. That's what you do. And so none of them want to do it because they weren't there. They didn't see what it was. My dad's in no state because he's just mumbling now uh, with a big red welt on his face. And uh, so I go, I'll, I'll call the police. I'm, I'm a robot with no feelings. So I call the police and I say, you know, this is Ken Reed. Uh, I live at this address. We just found our neighbor. He's dead. Oh, also his dogs ate him. And I hang up. My dad freaks out. Why'd you tell him about the dogs? Why did you mention the dogs? And I said, the first thing that occurred to me, I said, uh, so they don't think that we did that. <laughs> well, cause it was Thanksgiving and we're obviously not people of high income. We all look well fed and half of him is missing. <laughs> so the police came and it all got sorted out and and the weird thing is that I, I didn't react. I felt bad. Like a man, my father probably saw horrible shit in the army. And I don't know if maybe he was having a flashback for a time when he was in Vietnam and saw an old man get eaten by dogs. I don't know if that was a specific thing that happened. But it was weird that I didn't react at all. And it couldn't have just been being completely numb from R-rated horror movies. I don't know what the deal was, but I just felt nothing. I was kind of like, eh, that's interesting, I guess. Uh... So it's weird because that wasn't the only dead body I've found. Like for some reason, the universe, every eight years or so, likes to make me find a dead body just to check and see if I'm a human fucking being. Like it's just like, you gonna react like a person to this one? And I'm just like, no, oh, okay, I've seen that. So that's how it works. Every, every eight years or so, fate's just like, let's try again. 
And so it's, it's coming up on it. So this year I'm anticipating another dead body at some point, uh, and we'll see if I'm a human being yet. But uh, as of this, this date, no. Thank you very much. brings us to the end of it this week. Wasn't that something that was Ken Reed, fantastic comedian we met when we were in Boston last, with a story we call Dog Day After... (laughs) If you go to their listen page at wristdashshow.com, that's exactly how it's spelled. This is ballpark music behind me now with a song called Surrender. Hey, I wanted to give a little shout-out to a Risk fan named Rob Walter, who showed us some very kind and generous support recently. One of the easiest ways you can support us is to go to MaximumFun.org and become a member today. And don't forget to be in conversation with me, with us, about the stories on the show. I, I, I converse with people on the forum at MaximumFun.org about the stories, you know, behind-the-scenes trivia, all that kind of stuff. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter as well. We're talking about stuff there, at Risk Show, both places. Please comment about us on iTunes. We love those comments on iTunes, and they really help uh, raise our profile. Live shows. On November 16th, we are at the First Person Arts Festival in Philly with Janine Garofalo. On November 29th, we're at the Pit in New York with Benari Poulton. On November 30th, we're at Nerd Melt in L.A. with Eric Andre. You can go to risk-show.com tour to find out when we're performing live next. This has been the first episode in our double feature of terror. And so until next week, folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Yo quiero de tiene diarrea desde o todavía moriste, whatever the hell it was. I want you to have diarrhea until you die.